0: Urban violence kills thousands of Americans every year. It accounts for almost three-quarters of the murders in the U.S., and it traps a huge number of people in poverty, trauma, and despair. What if there was a way to cut murderous urban violence by half? Hitting back at urban violence, that's on this
1: episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. To support the show and unlock extra content and more exclusive benefits, become a member at patreon.com criminalinjustice
0: Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal criminal justice nerd and guide to all things in our dysfunctional criminal justice system and still so, so happy with that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law in the United States, as in every other developed country, we have crime. A lot of people think we have more crime, even far more crime, than other comparable high-income countries. But this actually isn't what the evidence shows. We aren't a lot more criminal than comparable countries. We aren't even a lot more violent. What we do have is much more deadly violent Our homicide rate is about seven times higher than comparable countries. Our gun homicide rate is 25 times higher. And nowhere does this plague show up more clearly than when we talk about urban violence. Violent actions causing or capable of causing death or serious injuries taking place in urban locations. Let's say places with populations of 25,000 or more. In 2017, we had over 17,000 murders in the United States. 70% of them would fall into the category of urban violence as we've just defined it. And the victims of this are overwhelmingly young, poor, disenfranchised men of color, African-Americans and Latinos. For young Latino men, urban violence is the second leading cause of death. For African-American men, it's by far the leading cause, causing more deaths in that group than the next nine most common causes combined. Here's some audio from a report on Fox News. The reporter is discussing what happened over the 4th of July holiday weekend in Chicago this year. Check it out.
1: The city is increasingly on edge this July 4th weekend. At least four people reportedly killed, 33 others injured in shootings across Chicago since the start of the holiday. Over
0: that one holiday weekend, five people killed, 62 people wounded, even with 1,500 extra police officers on the street. The police arrested 65 people on gun charges and they took 138 guns off the street. Now There's a feeling in many quarters that this situation is just hopeless. Nothing can be done. Others will say that this is just a problem of not enough policing, that even those 1,500 extra officers, that isn't enough. Or it's about policing that is not sufficiently aggressive, that something, the ACLU, something has held the police back. Others will say that it's a question of root causes. It's about poverty, education, and jobs. If you address those things, the violence will subside. Now, our guest looks at it differently. He begins his book with the following image. He says to us, imagine you're a trauma surgeon working in an ER in any city in the country. A young man is wheeled in on a gurney, bleeding profusely from a gunshot wound to his thigh. It looks like it's hit the big artery there, and if it's not stopped and treated immediately, the man will die. He'll bleed to death. Our guest asks us, what would you do first? If the man looks poor, has dirty clothing, has no money, perhaps he's homeless or jobless, he lacks a proper education, would you look at those things first? Would you see to those needs first? If he was involved in a fight and he might be dangerous, do you call the police or hospital security so that he can be cuffed or even arrested first? Of course you don't. You, as the trauma surgeon, you act. You act quickly to stop the bleeding. The man will die if you don't, and there will never be a chance to address these other issues, which could be done if the man survives. For our guest, our urban communities are the young man, suffering immediate life-threatening wounds, one person at a time, but also collectively, over and over, every single day. And we, the people of this country or in any city, we are the trauma surgeons. We must stop the bleeding first and foremost. And we have the tools to perform this vital job right now. If only we show the will and we put up the resources to get the job done. Our guest, Thomas Apt, has been a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government since 2014. He's also been a school teacher and a prosecutor, and he has served as a policymaker, as an official in the Department of Justice under President Obama, and as Deputy Secretary for Public Safety in New York State. He's the author of a new book, Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence, and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets, published in 2019 by Basic Books. We've got a link to it up on our website. He calls the book a work of, quote, forward-looking pragmatism, and I have to agree with that. Thomas App, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, thanks so much. Uh, Let's start by defining our terms. I talked a little about urban violence in the run-up to our conversation. What is urban violence for you uh, in a sense of what does it include and what does it not include? And why do we have to focus on it first?
2: To me, the term urban violence... Really uh, occurs at the intersection of youth violence, gang violence, gun violence, and community violence, to name a few. It, it, it is uh, it is the kind of violence that causes the most amount of homicides uh, in the United States, and uh, and it as you mentioned in your introduction, it occurs uh, in uh, in cities. And so that's the type of violence that uh, I'm focusing on. Uh, Urban violence, uh, under this definition, does not include uh, family violence. It does not include uh, state violence. It certainly doesn't include um, war or that type of conflict as well. Um, And I focused on it uh, because here in the United States, uh, homicide is by far the most costly form of crime, Costing in social costs anywhere from 10 to 19 million per homicide, and that's to say nothing of the incalculable cost to uh, victims and their families. Um, And most uh, and most homicides are the result of urban violence. And so, from a pragmatic view, I believe that we need to do something in this area.
0: And do something? You mean do something first before? Addressing other problems because you know, uh, as I said, and I think your book concedes there there'd be lots of folks who would tell you uh, that urban violence, murderous urban violence, is is sort of in the same places as uh, poverty, as lack of education, as joblessness, uh, as those kinds of problems. And a lot of people would say, "Look, you; those are the root causes of our problems." If you if you Uh, Go to those, uh, you will uh, address your problem of violence uh, almost overnight. Uh, Give people a better life, and the violence sort of takes care of itself. But you disagree with that, and I think that's a very important part of the book.
2: Sure. Well... When you have public conversations concerning violence, uh, as I've been having for now two decades, uh, these issues always come up. Uh, People say, well, in order to address urban violence, you really have to deal first with education or first with employment or first with poverty or inequality or structural racism or any number of structural or root causes.
0: And you would understand why they would say that.
2: Uh, I think I think it's. Highly understandable, and there is indeed a strong correlation between urban violence and many of those things. But when you move from a static comparison, comparing, uh, you know, poor communities to more wealthy ones, or poor countries to more wealthy ones, and examine changes over time in terms of a dynamic comparison. That cor- that correlation and that relationship becomes a lot murkier. We have seen in this country poverty rates go up and down, not, and not re- uh, reflect corresponding uh, changes in urban violence.
0: I, I remember, you know, people saying that, hey, you know, with the recession coming, you know, this takes us back to say 2007, 2008. Oh, we're getting into a recession. Crime is going to go up. It's going to be a, you know, a bloodbath in the streets. But it didn't happen, did it?
2: It did not happen, and it didn't happen during the Great Recession either. And so that's something that's very important to keep in mind. And then while we need to understand the relationship uh, between these root causes and urban violence, I uh, argue in the book that, in fact, the relationship may be even stronger in reverse, in that urban violence plays a key role in perpetuating concentrated poverty, perpetuating inequality, and perpetuating all of these other uh, undesirable uh, undesirable outcomes. It's very, very difficult in neighborhoods suffering from high rates of violent crime to educate children effectively, to attract commercial investment, to uh, achieve uh, quality health outcomes. Everything is impacted by chronic and repeated exposure to violence.
0: And so if you have that kind of repeated exposure to violence, uh, none of those other things can really take root and thrive. I mean, you, you just think of business, for instance. We had a wonderful guest on uh, uh, some months ago, and she talked about the high cost of crime. And with murder, of course, that's the highest cost there is. You You've put it at between 10 and $19 million per homicide. But it's more than that. Who wants to start a business where customers have to be afraid for their lives?
2: Precisely. And in fact, the, uh, the reason that number is so high is because it, is, it includes an estimate of those intangibles, the costs of fear, the costs of avoidance. And those costs really show up uh, most prominently in property values. If you have a homicide uh, at a certain address, in the following year, all of the addresses surrounding that address are going to see a decline in their property values.
0: All of them. So it's not like it's just the place where the killing happened. It's all of the surrounding buildings and, of course, by extension, the entire neighborhood. So with that, uh, you want to get into the the guts of the neighborhood. You've got to improve public safety on the most basic level.
2: I agree. And one of the things that's really important to understand about urban violence is how sticky it is. And by sticky, I mean it's highly concentrated among a small number of people, places, and behaviors. And so while root causes like poverty or like uh, concentrated disadvantage or all of these other things may be operating on a huge number of residents and blocks in a certain city... It's really only a few residents and a few blocks where the urban violence is concentrating. And so what that suggests is that instead of the conventional approach, which is to attack urban violence from the outside in, my recommendation and my argument in the book is to attack urban violence from the inside out. Go directly at the problem.
0: That is, that is incredibly and critically important because in the past, what we've had are approaches where there's a huge crackdown across an entire neighborhood, all of Roxbury in Boston or all of the west side in Chicago, something like that. And what you're saying is that that simply isn't as effective as what you call going at it from the outside in. And that approach... If I understand it correctly, that's really the approach that sort of uh, uh, took root or or was tried first, that's a better way to put it, uh, in Boston in the early 90s. Uh, This was uh, 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 David Kennedy and many other actors, he would tell you. We had David on as a guest back in episode 44. I interviewed him for an earlier book of mine, Good Cops. Uh, It was a whole host of actors uh, um who uh, went at this problem by going directly to those sticky persons in those sticky places to address violence and gun violence, particularly. Uh, and this became known over time as you know sort of a generic name, gun violence reduction strategy. There were other names for it like ceasefire and focus deterrence. And that gun violence reduction strategy, that sort of forms the centerpiece of your plan. Why don't you talk about that?
2: Sure. Uh, I don't know if it's the centerpiece, but it is uh, an extremely important piece, uh, and it is uh, the strategy for which there is the largest and strongest body of evidence in terms of reducing shootings and killings in a given city.
0: We love to hear about real evidence and not just assertions. Go ahead and explain to us.
2: Sure. Uh, the book relies uh, uh, largely on systematic reviews. Systematic reviews uh, synthesize the results of multiple rigorous studies. Uh, for the crime nerds in the audience, uh, I'm talking about quasi-experimental or experimental studies. Okay. And it and it synthesizes those results to give uh, practitioners, policymakers, and other res- uh, researchers uh confidence about uh an entire body of evidence. And so the book is examining these systematic reviews and identifying the ones relating to urban violence and explaining uh, what works in very concrete terms for uh for the broader audience. So in the case of focused deterrence, there's been not one but two systematic reviews, uh an original one and then an update of a of a uh of the original. And those, uh, those, that systematic review captures all of the rigorous research around this particular strategy. Uh, that includes uh, 24 individual tests of the strategy, 19 of which uh, were deemed to be successful in terms of having statistically significant results on crime and violence. And, in, and importantly, the particular strategy that is discussed in the book The group violence reduction strategy was tested 12 times, and all 12 times it achieved noteworthy results.
0: That is really impressive. Impressive, number one, in that so many of those succeeded. Uh, But also, I got to say, you know, you just don't always find that strategies get that rigorous testing. Uh, let alone succeed. And yet people kind of will stick with them for a long time. As you look at that and you see that, what's the overall approach to going inside, as you called it before? How How is it done?
2: I believe that you need to create a portfolio of strategies. There's no one strategy, not even focused deterrence or the group violence strategy, that can be depended on in totality. You need a a portfolio of strategies that, in combination, have three common values. The first value is focus. As I said, they uh, they focus on the sticky people and places and behaviors where violence concentrates. The second uh, principle or value is balance, meaning that they need to have a balance of both enforcement and prevention of stick and also carrot. And then the third value or principle is fairness. As you know, we're living through a crisis of confidence in the American criminal justice system right now. And so anything we do in this space needs to be positively viewed by impacted individuals and community members. They need to perceive it as fair and legitimate.
0: Right. So that's an important connection for us. We've talked here about procedural justice, the idea that you... When you're enforcing the law, if you're the police, you have to be seen as legitimate if you're going to have any kind of real authority and if people are going to obey the law. And to do that, you have to give people a chance to have voice. You have to listen to them. You have to treat them with respect no matter what kind of enforcement you're doing. So if you don't pay attention to that, people won't look at the effort as legitimate.
2: That's correct. And in fact, I review the evidence for procedural justice in the
0: book. And you talk about balance. I think that's a really important point, balance in the sense of carrot and stick. Talk a little bit more about what those carrots and sticks actually look like in the successful places that this has been tried.
2: Sure. Sure. So, I, w- I was very surprised to find when my colleague Christopher Winship and I performed a systematic meta review looking at all of the systematic reviews relating to urban violence, which uh, included um, over 1,400 individual impact evaluations. I was surprised that this principle of, uh, of, of balance came out, in that Chris and I did not see a clear preference. in in the evidence for either a sort of hard enforcement oriented approach or a soft prevention oriented approach. All across the spectrum of anti-violence interventions ranging from tough on crime to soft on crime, there were examples of approaches that had been successful. And so the evidence does not privilege uh, hard versus soft. In addition, when you look across the United States, there really is no example of a city that simply arrested its way out of urban violence or that simply programmed its way out. And this is a challenge in the United States because our criminal justice conversation is very polarized. People either favor police-only approaches or approaches that don't involve the police at all, when in fact we need a balanced strategy.
0: And that is critically, critically important. And uh, police are involved in this portfolio of strategies here that you have discussed. Uh, And if if the folks who live in communities don't accept that police have to be part of the solution, that's going to be a problem.
2: That's absolutely a problem. I, I have taken, as I start to uh, work with cities directly about the, these issues and, and sort of engage them about the subjects of the book, I've started saying, we're either going to solve this together or not at all. We have to be able to come together in order to address this
0: issue. And if you don't, um, the, the path leads nowhere. Um, let's take a quick break here. We're with Thomas App of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We're talking about his new book, Bleeding Out, which is all about addressing urban violence. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Eyewitness Testimony. Confessions, fingerprints, and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But research shows these methods are far less reliable than you might think. David Harris's 2012 book, Failed Evidence, explores the myths and misconceptions around high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To celebrate our Patreon launch, we're giving away 100 signed copies of Failed Evidence to our first 100 members at the $5 level. Claim yours now and get access to more content on the members' feed at patreon.com slash criminal injustice.
0: Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Thomas Abt of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We're talking about his new book, Bleeding Out the Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. We have a link to it up on our website. Before we took a break, we were talking about the critical concept of balance, uh, the idea of fairness and of having law enforcement involved. Uh, Tell us about one or two examples where this process has been done, Uh, where it has succeeded. I think people would really like to bring things to concrete cases.
2: Sure. So I'll begin in Chicago where uh, a a relatively well-known program called uh, Becoming a Man has shown some really uh, exciting results working with uh, at-risk youth um, in uh, difficult and disadvantaged high schools. The, uh, The program, BAM for short, Uh, features Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT for short. CBT has been around for decades, but it's only recently been used to address uh, crime and, in particular, violence. And it's had some very positive results. A recent systematic review, uh, or maybe not so recent, uh, in uh, 2008 or 2009 or so, Uh, compiled dozens of studies and showed that, in fact, there is a very strong and significant effect size uh, when uh, CBT is applied to criminality and violence. What CBT does is it is a very practical focus on thinking and behavior. And if you can work with someone to identify problematic ways of thinking, you can help them address their behavior. And so a lot of this involves anger management, it involves interpersonal problem solving, and it involves something called future orientation. The tragic reality is, is that many of the young men at the highest risk for violence, either as perpetrators or as victims, don't expect to live very long. They don't expect to see their 21st birthday. And so it's very hard to work with them when they have such a short time horizon.
0: Absolutely. Because so if they don't believe there is a future for them, why would they think ahead?
2: Exactly. And so CBT helps them increase that time horizon.
0: Yes. So with this kind of a strategy, what, what, what kind of results were seen?
2: Uh, I don't have the study in front of me, but I believe it is a uh, 50% reduction in violent arrests, or maybe uh, 40 to 50%, uh, excuse me, in violent arrests after either a year or two years of the programming.
0: And what about Oakland, California? I've seen that in your book, too.
2: Yes. So in Oakland, uh, they used the group violence reduction strategy. Uh, And since 2012, they've had a more than 50 percent reduction in shootings and killings. The interesting thing about what happened in Oakland is that Oakland is, in many respects, a quite difficult city to work in. It has uh, historically high rates of violence. And it has famously poor relationships between the police and the community and, uh, and it, the community members. Uh, some of, uh, some of your audience may know that uh, the Black Panthers were started in Oakland in response to police violence.
0: Oh sure yes
2: and so in this in this environment, uh, focused deterrence or the group violence strategy was launched and it had been tried in Oakland in the past, but it had failed. The difference was was local community members, uh, local activists, local faith representatives who insisted that local leadership both adopt the program and implement it with fidelity, really do it right. And they stayed focused on it. And the program was successful, even weathering huge storms like police scandals, numerous police chief replacements and other political transitions.
0: That is really impressive.
2: Absolutely. And what, the, uh, and what focused deterrence or the group violence reduction strategy did in Oakland, as it does in other places, is it creates a partnership of community members, service providers, and of course, law enforcement. And this partnership then identifies the people at the highest risk for, uh, for violence. In Oakland, they identified about 400 people. And then through a series of small group meetings, They engage those people, and they offer a very clear message. They say, the shooting is wrong, and it has to stop. We know that you are involved in the shooting. If you are willing to stop, we will help you. But if you refuse to stop, we will stop you.
0: And you'll go to federal prison. You'll get heavy sentences. This is not going to go on
2: that 's right, but it 's very important uh, to balance that message of accountability with a message of empathy in these meetings, for instance, there are often mothers who have lost sons uh, to urban gun violence, and they talk about their love for their sons and for the love their love for the young men in the audience, and that they don 't want those young men to follow the same path it 's very important that the message not be one side or another. Again, the principle of balance.
0: balance. That's it, it.
2: That's right. Exactly. And in Oakland, they do this quite well.
0: Yeah. And when we say balance, uh, we also mean, besides balancing the sternness and the empathy, we balance the stern message of consequences with, we can help you right now. And those those are the carrots and it's social services and it's schooling and it's jobs and things like that. And a lot of that comes from the private sector in, in many cases, doesn't it?
2: Um, in some In some cases it does, but I think it's very important that we identify which types of social services have been successful with these types of populations and which haven't. Yeah, please do that. Uh, Sure. So there's a, a famous saying uh, that was uh, that was created by Father Gre- uh, Greg Boyle, um, who is uh, some a famous um, uh, person who works with gangs in L.A., and he said, "Nothing stops a bullet like a job." Yes. Um, and he's become famous for that phrase, but he. Uh, in recent years has stopped using that phrase and has even sort of publicly recanted it. And the reason is is because it's just not true. It's just not consistent with the evidence. What the evidence shows is that pure employment programs, pure education programs, many of the programs that sound good and feel good, uh, arts, theater, things like this, um, are not successful when they work with these highest-risk uh, uh, people unless they have this cognitive behavioral component and unless they really meet these individuals where they're at because treating the highest-risk individuals is not like treating everyone else. And so it's very important that these programs have a clinical element and that they really meet or are specifically designed for this high-risk population.
0: Right so just putting people in a job wouldn't be enough you really have to see to the needs of people who are sitting in front of you if you want to reach them. So Absolutely. When, let's let's look at big picture if you could get as your book proposes you could get these kinds of interventions in place in the largest cities and some of the second tier cities. Um, What kind of change would we be looking at in the rates of homicide over time? What kinds of outright cost savings would there be for the investment?
2: I believe that uh, through a combination of programs that are identified in the book, and we've discussed a few here, uh, you can really have significant results. And you can have significant results without new legislation or without massive budget hikes. The programs that we're talking about are actually surprisingly afford- affordable, and that's because they are so targeted. Uh, and so, my, by my calculation, I believe that uh, if we uh, spend the money to identify uh, a portfolio of programs in the 40 most violent cities in the United States that is focused, balanced, and fair, and we implement uh, those programs well we can achieve a 10% reduction in homicide every year for seven years. We need the first year for planning. Uh What that means is that over eight years, you can have a 50% reduction in homicide. By my estimate, we can save uh, over those eight years more than 12,000 lives.
0: And this is all with things we already know about. It doesn't take new programs, new laws, as you say
2: no that's the that's one of the central issues and frustrations in the book uh... there's a lot of evidence on what works in violence reduction out there but that evidence is not being paid attention to we're not using that evidence we're not taking successful programs in one jurisdiction and introducing them in other jurisdictions too many cities are suffering in isolation too many cities are just struggling uh, and and sort of thrashing about in the darkness when in fact there is uh there is light coming from other places and if they were only introduced to those strategies they could be much more successful
0: i see so i think a lot of people are going to wonder where are guns in this discussion and from reading your book uh i can see that when you talk about guns, it's kind of different than what you see in a lot of other places. Uh, It's gun control, it's assault weapons or whatever it happens to be. You have something very specific in mind. It's gun behaviors that are dangerous. Can you talk about that?
2: Sure. I think that we approach guns in the urban violence space in a somewhat simplistic way. We talk about guns in an all or nothing sense. We either want to get rid of guns entirely or guns are not the problem at all it 's clearly true that the more guns that we have, uh, the more likely they are to be used in uh, in violent crime uh, but it's also true that the overwhelming majority of Weapons are lawfully owned and operated, and in fact, urban violence is mostly uh is mostly perpetrated by people using guns who have no legal right to use them so many of the sort of standard uh, uh sort of prescriptions that people talk about in terms of gun control uh things like uh um, you know, universal background checks mm-hmm. or assault weapons bans these things are not going to have a significant impact on urban violence because the guns being used in urban violence are already are already excuse me illegally carried and possessed. And so what we need are more targeted strategies. And again, that principle of focus is critical. Instead of thinking about guns, we need to think about illegal gun carrying. And we need to think about illegal gun carrying by those small number of people in those small number of places. When I am advising mayors or police chiefs or other people, I'm always uh, coming back to this idea, keep it concrete, think about people, places, and behaviors. If you're worried about guns, think about gun carrying by hot people in hot places. That breaks it down into a way that policymakers can really achieve something significant.
0: Absolutely. So what would that look like? If it looks like stopping lots of black and brown people in those neighborhoods, aren't you going to get charges thrown at you of profiling or that sort of thing?
2: Uh, Yes, if you do it in an unfocused and unbalanced way and in a way that is not perceived as fair and legitimate. But as I identify uh, in the book, sometimes aggressive strategies, when they're properly framed for the community, when people speak, uh, talk to the community about them in advance, explain why they're going to be doing them, explain what will happen – and explain what benefits they receive, the community is actually quite receptive to those efforts. For instance, in Kansas City, there was a fairly aggressive uh, effort called the Kansas City Gun Project in the yes. 90s. Mm-hmm. And that project involved uh, pretty much a uh, lot of uh, car and pedestrian stops to check people to see if they were, uh, had illegal weapons on them. Now, this type of activity, which many people call stop-and-frisk, has had lots and lots of negative attention, lots and lots of controversy, and has had lots of community resistance. Yeah, think of New
0: York, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Exactly. But that didn't happen in Kansas. And so the question is why it didn't. And the answer is because before the program was uh, implemented, the police did something unusual. They went door-to-door in the community. And they told everyone about what they were planning to do and why they
0: were planning to do
2: it. And the community actually endorsed what they were going to do. And the program was ultimately successful.
0: Now, that would be very different because in New York, I can tell you from doing a little bit of professional work there myself, uh, there was very much the feeling that this was uh, done to them, not for them, and certainly not with them, the people in the community.
2: Well, this is a big issue in the criminal justice system. I am a former prosecutor, and so I know this from personal experience. We in law enforcement, or in, you know, formerly in law enforcement, we are not used to explaining ourselves. We are not used to giving public justifications for what we do, and we have to get over that. We have to be explaining, constantly explaining why we do what we do, and what, we, uh, and what are the reasons behind it and what we hope to gain out of it. We need to be in a continual conversation with the people and places that are most impacted by our work.
0: So, last question. Uh, if the uh, mayor of uh, City X or police chief of City Y comes to you and says, okay, I'm game, what do, you, what do we have to do to get started? Uh, what do you need from me? What's this going to look like? What would be your response?
2: My response is that We need to treat urban violence like we would a gunshot wound in the emergency room. So what I would say is the first thing we need to begin with is triage. We need everybody who's going to be working on this to acknowledge and accept that we're going to be focused exclusively on urban violence, exclusively on reducing shootings and killings, and that that is the focus of the effort. That doesn't mean that we won't be thinking about jobs or uh, treatment or assistance, but the whole purpose will be to reduce shootings and killings. So that's triage. Then we have to go to diagnosis, and there we need to identify who is doing the shooting in that given city, where that shooting is happening, and why it is happening. And doing the, uh, and using data through things like social network analysis, but also police intelligence, and also intelligence from community members and street outreach workers to get a, so that we know who specifically is involved, so we don't have to use these dragnet, zero-tolerance, one-size-fits-all approaches. Having done the diagnosis, now we can talk about treatment. And there we need those strategies, uh, the group violence reduction strategy, hotspots policing cognitive behavioral therapy, family functional therapy, these types of things, those treatments that taken together are focused, balanced, and fair. And if we do all those things right, triage, diagnosis, and treatment, then the prognosis will be a very positive one.
0: That's Thomas Apt. He's senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and he's the author of Bleeding Out the Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. We've got a link to it up on our website. Thanks for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Now, let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This story of a lawyer behaving badly from Law 360 and from the ABA Journal News Online stars lawyer Loring Justice. Yes, that's his name, Justice of Tennessee. Lawyer Justice had a federal civil case against the Lowe's home improvement store chain, and that matter spun off a discovery. Lawyer Justice needed to depose a certain employee of Lowe's, and the other side would not give up the employee's name. So, Lawyer Justice had to spend time and money to find the employee and then depose the employee. Now, in that circumstance, lawyer justice asked that the judge in the case order Lowe's to pay expenses for that process since they had refused to give him the employee's name, and the judge agreed. Lawyer justice was entitled to expenses. Lawyer justice gave the judge the legal bills for those expenses, bills for himself and for his paralegal. So far, so good. But once the judge saw the bills, something did not look right. The judge never awarded any money for expenses to lawyer justice because 17 items described in the bills as for lawyer justice's time were actually identical, or nearly so, to items submitted by justice's paralegal. Other items Justice submitted to the judge were, quote, completely unrelated to the discovery matter involving Lowe's. Not only would the judge not order payment, the matter was referred to the State Board of Professional Responsibility. Uh Uh-oh, the board found Justice's explanation for the situation not credible and suspended him from practice for a year. Justice appealed to a court which modified the penalty to disbarment because lawyer justices, quote, intentional deceit and, quote, total lack of remorse made it worse in their opinion. On appeal again, the Tennessee Supreme Court upheld lawyer justices disbarment. The court characterized some of justices arguments as, quote, too outlandish to dignify with discussion, close quote. Another argument justice made that the trial judge's given name showed bias. The Supreme Court wrote that, quote, not only is this argument without merit, it is absurd. Close quote. And what is lawyer justice's final take on the matter? Well, he paraphrases revolutionary-era patriot Nathan Hale in what he told Law 360, and I will quote, I regret I only had one law license to lose for my clients and for the interests of an uncorrupted fair and constitutional legal system in Tennessee. Close quote. Wow, yeah, well, the people of Tennessee, they should be pretty glad you only have one license to lose, too. Goodbye. That wraps another session of Lawyers Behaving Badly and another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Reviews on your podcast website will help people find us, so do them. Check out our website, www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly got a question about the criminal justice system well call it in you can ask dave call 412 407-3389 leave us your first name where you're calling from and your brief question also give us some contact information but we won't share that again the number 412 407-3389 thanks for listening i'm david harris and i'll be back with you next time
1: Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Wallerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminal injustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.
0: Coke Industries on Charles and David Coke, names that are synonymous with right-wing political causes and deregulation of industry. So why is Coke joining with the left to give former inmates second chances? Coke Industries and criminal justice reform. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.